This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Eaton Vance High Yield ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find smart bond selection from a specialized team with deep fixed income expertise. Get to know what's inside EVHY, the symbol of high yield done right, at eatonvance.com slash symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. Welcome to The Exchange Podcast. I'm Rob Cox, global editor of Reuters Breaking Views. To mark the 10-year anniversary of the collapse of Lehman Brothers and the near-death spiral it caused in the international financial system, we are presenting a series of interviews with policymakers, regulators, and bankers who are caught up in that maelstrom a decade ago. Give a listen to 10 Years After. As the president of the Richmond Federal Reserve Bank, Jeff Lacker had a unique perspective on the financial crisis that unfolded a decade ago after Lehman's collapse. That's because the Richmond Fed's territory at the time included the headquarters of two of the largest U.S. financial institutions. Bank of America and Wachovia were both based in Charlotte, North Carolina. Jeff talks a bit about how the authorities ultimately supervised a purchase of Wachovia by Wells Fargo without taxpayers footing the bill. As you may recall, Citigroup thought it had the deal stitch up first. Jeff also gives his views about bank regulation, monetary policy, and what's still keeping him a bit worried. Give it a listen. Jeff, welcome from Richmond, Virginia. Pleasure. So, uh, look, I thought it would be a great opportunity to get your perspective as someone who ran a regional Federal Reserve Bank. um, Your perspective on on what happened 10 years ago, where we're headed. Um, But I thought maybe let's start with... Back, you joined the Richmond Fed in 1989. You became the president in 2004. So you kind of had a, a front row seat on on sort of what got us to that to the crisis in some ways. And then, of course, right mm-hmm. through right mm-hmm. through the thick of it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, but let's go back a bit. When you know you, you became president of the Richmond Fed, I mean, when when did you start to to get concerned or see some see some cracks in the sort of you know, whether it's the mortgage finance business or the lending business overall in, in the district that you were looking over? Yeah. So, you know, back in the 90s, I should say that back in the 90s, um, even before the uh, housing finance um, phenomenon in the mid-2000s, uh, there was a lot of discussion among economists and policymakers in the, in the 1990s about uh, too big to fail and the overall stance of the regulatory regime towards uh, large financial institutions. So I think there was concern back then even that, uh, it, it wasn't clear we were well positioned for trouble among large institutions. North Carolina banks had a head start on the rest of the southeast region, and then they sort of came out on top in a lot of that. So there was Bank of America and uh, Wachovia down in uh, headquartered in Charlotte um, in the early 2000s as as the large banks. Those were those were two of the four largest banks in the country going right. into the crisis. The other two being Citi and J P Morgan Chase. So in, in mid-2007, in early July, uh, we actually heard from uh, the credit risk officer at Wachovia, a man named Don Truslow, uh, that they were seeing some very um, concerning phenomena in the commercial paper market and um, were very worried. And it, we, we, 
surfaced this within the system and, and uh, contacted colleagues at the New York Fed and, and informed them about this. And the concerns were somewhat uh, treated somewhat dismissively, like, well, you know, grow up or, you know, um, Interesting. A pull up your britches kind of response. But then in August, uh, things really sort of hit the fan in the commercial paper market. And that's, that's when things really first started getting squirrely. Yeah, I mean, some people look at the early 2007, you had like, I think HSBC had started to warn about some of the subprime, you know, uh, loans that it had through that that um, household finance business. They had, you could see there were these little canaries, as, as it were, but they weren't they weren't yet a full blown crisis. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there were, the losses were coming from the subprime sector, and yeah. that began to be clear at the end of 2006. Um, but just what happened in financial markets, how the interbank markets handled those um, losses was, I mean, that was sort of up for grabs. And that's what really unfolded in August and, and um, induced a policy reaction by uh, the Fed uh, on August 17th when we lowered the discount rate by 50 basis points in response to what was going on in the commercial paper market. And then, and then, but then we had a full year before the whole thing blew up. Yeah, and so that's a really interesting observation that um, we, we sort of – the Fed adopted a, a, a philosophy about the crisis, um, and it wasn't the only one we could have adopted, but uh, the system's response was predicated on the notion that more central bank credit would alleviate strains and improve the functioning of the financial market. And, of course, the critique of that is that um, encouraging – um, institutions to uh, feel as if they could avail themselves of central bank credit and then it would be forthcoming has a moral hazard effect that you have to take on board. And arguably the move we made in August of 2007 uh, encouraged institutions like Bayer and Lehman to avoid taking very costly measures to Im- improve themselves and make themselves less vulnerable to shocks. So, for example, in early 2008, Lehman raised capital, and they had subscriptions for $30 billion worth of new equity. They only took five of it. Uh-huh. They could have taken more, but it would have involved dilution of their current equity holders. They didn't feel like that was worth it, given the balance of uh, costs and benefits involved. And part of that had to be their sense that, Yes, push came to shove. You know, there there would be help forthcoming. The feeling that there was a safety net under them. So, when by the time we get to the fall of 2008, while there has been some capital raising uh, by the large institutions, it was much less, in hindsight, much less than they needed to weather the storm of what hit after Lehman. Yeah. Arguably, our actions contributed to their unwillingness to raise more capital. And make themselves less vulnerable. That's an interesting point. I mean, you could almost make take extrapolate that further, of course, to say that the central bank's responses after 2000, after Lehman's demise, um, both in monetary policy perspective and sort of regulatory policy, did that have the same effect over the past 10 years? I mean, are we now in a position where, um, in a sense, that um, you know, cheap money? Um, has has created a similar problem. Oh, let's leave aside monetary policy for a second. There's a sort of a different constellation of issues there. But I, I think on the banking side, 
um, for sure the, the actions we took in the fall of 08 have set precedents that uh, we um, are, you know, are going to linger over markets and are going to affect incentives um, for years to come. And the problem we faced, I think, in, in fall of 08, um, in large measure, had to do with the ambiguity of those um, precedents that we had set and, the, and the, the lack of clarity about where we would intervene, when we'd intervene, and why. And that ambiguity, I think, um, can be really uh, poisonous, can be really um, uh, dangerous in, in, as, as events unfold. And I think um, how events fall, unfold in the fall of, of 08 demonstrates that. And we'll get to that. I mean, what do you think about the the, pol the monetary policy side of that? I mean, there is a, also one of the things uh, people, you know, question is what what half 10 years of ultra low interest rate policy wrought to for, you know, markets, uh, finance, well, and beyond? Well, I think, I, I think cutting interest rates to near zero in, in late 08, given what was happening in the real side of the economy, was warranted to keep inflation from falling um, and to, to keep uh, inflation expectations reasonably well-contained and stable. Um, at some point, uh, we were going to have to raise rates, and um, you know, that debate was joined in the last couple of years, and the, the Fed's been moving rates up. I don't fault the Fed for keeping rates um, low for a time after 2000, 2009 and later. Um, I, to my mind, the balance of risk would have suggested raising rates a little earlier. I dissented mm -hmm. in that direction, um, but so far, um, so far, th things seem to have uh, unfolded in a fairly satisfactory way with regard to inflation risks. Things seem to be steady as she goes. But let let's go back to two thousand and eight. Let's go back to the you know the crack, as it were, when Lehman Brothers declared bankruptcy. Where were you? How did that whole thing unfold? And, and, and I guess at the same time, you were watching Bank of America do its deal to buy Merrill Lynch all kind of in the same mm -hmm. few hours. Yeah. So Bank of America was um, doing due diligence on Lehman. Um, and our information is that they would have been willing to purchase Lehman on the same terms that J.P. Morgan Chase purchased Bear Stearns. That is to say, with um, a portion of the bad assets of Lehman sort of taken off the books um, the way with Bear Stearns, a portion of the assets were, were taken into um, the, the, the New York Fed. Um, that was not available to them. They were told that on Saturday morning of the Lehman weekend, and that's what uh, led them to turn to Merrill and, uh, and, and um, you know, pursue that uh, combination. Um, uh, given what Merrill, you know, Merrill and, and Bank of America had been in, in conversations before that, um, but then they, they turned and pulled the trigger since Lehman, you know, wasn't going to get any assistance, and that was made clear to them. Uh, by, everybody wanted uh, the, the Jamie Dimon's yeah. deal, but nobody got it. <laughs> and I guess, right. you know, if you go back and ask Jamie now, he, I'm not sure he, he was so happy with it in, over the long term, um, given the losses and the fines and all the things that yeah, ended up. But yeah, but it's important to realize after Bear, the communication from uh, the, the Treasury and the Fed was relatively ambiguous. We, um, the, the communications were along the line. The message was along the lines of, we hope that doesn't happen again. And that left it unclear whether 
we would rescue Lehman or not. I think there, there were a lot of portions of the market that believed we would. Lehman certainly believed we would. Leadership at Lehman believed we would. They did, yeah. Um, but the decision wasn't communicated. You know, the decision wasn't made until early September, I don't think, um, or late August um, by the Treasury Secretary. And um, that ambiguity about whether we'd intervene or not is what sort of whipsawed markets after Lehman. Yeah, yeah. I mean, very quickly. So you had to. So the Lehman Brothers bankruptcy happens. You had. I mean, what was your role uh, when you were running uh, Richmond Fed? It went with Merrill Lynch and B of A at that point. I mean, I guess B of A being in your district, you had to. You had to kind of give a view on it. Well, the um, supervisory staff for the holding company at Bank of America on the Federal Reserve side was. Um, were Richmond Fed employees down in Charlotte and in Richmond. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had a um, you know good window into uh, their condition on an ongoing basis. Um, and uh, we had a, you know, our, our staff had a, a role, Richmond Fed staff had a role to play in how that all played out um, within the Federal Reserve System. So I, I had a good sense of what was going on uh, and good intelligence about what was going on. Um, I didn't have a formal role, except that the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond, um, you know, would have been the discount window lender for either of those institutions. And right. at the end of the day, discount window decisions are made by the um, Reserve Bank, not um, by the Board of Governors. They, can, they can't tell us to lend or not to lend. Um, so right. um, that gave me a window into those institutions. Let's... Let's now sort of move ahead a little bit. So we're 10 years down the road from all this. Um, you know, what, how do you assess the system? I mean, do you think, you know, when you look at, at all of the reforms that have been put in place in the United States, so whether it's Dodd-Frank and elements of that, whether it's a Volcker rule, uh, increased capital requirements, stress tests, um, uh, how, are you feeling pretty comfortable? Do you think we're, you know, that we're not destined for some sort of 2008 redux um, as a result of all the the changes that we've put in place, I don't know. I'm a, I'm a, I'm quite apprehensive. Um, so there's been a, a lot um, by way of strengthening uh, the supervision of uh, large banking organizations, particularly constraints on their risk taking and and their systems for risk management. Uh, to some extent, you can view that as a essentially a response to an overly rapid. Uh, consolidation from the from the from the 80s on the banking system has been recovering from um, decades of constraints on bank size and mm-hmm. so these institutions which are large now they got there really rapidly whereas without those constraints over the last century they would have gotten there more gradually and been able to build more robust and mature risk management systems more compatible with their size. But their rapid growth, especially in the 90s and 2000s, I think left them um, large but without the infrastructure to, to cope with their size. And so I think there's been a lot of progress on that, and that's, that's heartening. But at the same time, there's just tremendous ambiguity about when the government's going to rescue investors and when they're not going to rescue investors. And I think the ambi- that ambiguity is, is going to be um, very problematic um, should an institution um, get into trouble, have liquidity problems or, or even solvency problems uh, in the future. Yeah, I mean, 
It's interesting. So I was looking at the FDIC data the other day, which showed that, you know, the funding cost, I guess it's called cost of funding earning assets, the little ratio they look at. For the small banks, for the first time since before the crisis, since like 07, you're starting to actually see that the small banks, you know, banks with, a, with basically a billion of assets or, or fewer, are now actually funding themselves the same as the top, you know, nine banks which I hadn't seen for ages. And, and I'm just wondering if that's a, at least there's some sense that maybe, you know, in the marketplace, there is a perception that everybody can fail. That's an, yeah, that's an interesting observation. I mean, I think the large banks are viewed as uh, too big to fail. I think the largest um, tier, um, you know, a trillion or over are, are viewed by markets as, as likely to have their liabilities, both short-term and long-term, supported by government intervention should some problems arise. I think for the, the smaller banks, um, I think it's uh, an individual question because uninsured creditors do take losses when smaller community banks fail. Yeah. And so I think their, their funding costs reflect, you know, a genuine assessment that they're pretty well run. The ones that remain are well run um, and well capitalized. And I think that's true if you look at their capital capital ratios, for example. And then in the middle is where the interesting action is going to be, I think, in the next um, episode, um, should it come soon or, you know, decades from now. Um, It's it's the tier that's sort of outside the top tier, ones that, you know, um, maybe were just on the borderline of, of getting treated as too big to fail in the last crisis. And that's where the ambiguity is going to be. You know, are they... Is, is the government going to let them go, let uninsured creditors take losses or not? Um, it's funny and, you say that because where, the, the FDIC numbers actually show that, that those the banks be, that are sort of between $10 billion and $250 billion, which is sort of that area, mm-hmm. so a very large group, yeah. obviously, but, but they are their, fund, their cost of funding earning assets is higher than everybody's, even higher than the, than the trillion dollar um, and the little guys. So it, it bears out what you're saying, which is, but the, I guess the, the the good point is maybe the markets are kind of assessing that risk properly, which is, you know, maybe they hadn't done for quite some time. Yeah, no, I think markets have been pretty savvy about this all along. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think they get it. I think they get it. So that's the thing I'm worried about, you know, yeah. banks in that tier. And then there's always the, out, you know, outside of the banking sector issues that could – um, motivate some intervention of some sort or you know, seemingly force the, um, the, the government's hand on things. Yeah, people talk um, about cybersecurity and some of those kinds of risks are sort of out there. No one knows quite how to assess them and, and no one knows what they'll have to do to respond to them. Uh, so cyber risks is an area where, um, you know, I think there have been you know, substantial volatility, substantial losses to investors. And so I think politically, as far as the government's concerned, it's sort of like hedge funds were in the, in the 2000s. They're sort of beyond the pale. Nobody thinks they're going to get supported. And um, if no one thinks they're going to get supported, it's unlikely that uh, events conspire to um, politically force, you know, the Treasury's hand or the Fed's hand to actually intervene and support them. Uh, they don't have enough connection to mm. the, the political system to be able to um, exercise that that leverage. It's 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 places like money market funds. Oh yeah, um, where you know or you know wealth you know asset management arrangements. Those, that's where you want to worry. Where people 
um, see that in the crisis we, we intervened. Big commercial paper issuers, that's another one. You know, They see that we intervened to support that market in the crisis. They're maybe baking in a, a, a degree to which they expect us to do it again should, there, should trouble emerge again. And without us having taken a strong stand on whether we will or will um, or will not, in the future, there's there's going to be this volatility and there's going to be this capacity for the market to essentially force our hand. So if you look at Wachovia, for example, there was a big debate on Wachovia. And this is why Wachovia is sort of an underappreciated episode in this whole uh, the whole uh, series of events in late 2008, uh, where Tim Geithner and Sheila Baer faced off in a debate about whether the FDIC should support um, uninsured uh, bank and bank holding company liabilities, mm-hmm. uh, the debt of bank holding companies. And Tim argued, probably correctly, that if if she didn't support the holding company debt of Wachovia, that no large bank would be able to raise money in the debt markets on Monday morning. Now, that all seems natural, but if you just unpack that for a minute, if you just think about that for a minute, it's a really astonishing thing. It says basically that Markets expect the government to support holding company debt, and if we don't, those markets will sell off, and those those companies will have trouble raising debt. So it, it says basically we should intervene to support that debt because markets expect us to. Mm. And that points the finger at the pre-existing set of expectations that we were likely to support their debt. And it, in the fall of 2008, that is bound to have been encouraged by the way we treated Bear Stearns, and more broadly, you know, the discount rate cut in August 2007, 2007 that sent the message that um, we were willing to be liberal with the use of central bank credit to support um, investors. I mean, do you think that now that, that it's clear that there are that that creditors will face the will be well after shareholders creditors in these in a in a failing bank holding company would actually have to absorb the losses? I mean, is that I don't think it's clear. Mm-hmm. At all, I, I think that the, the orderly liquidation authority that Dodd Frank authorized the FDIC to set up is um, is structured in a way that lets them inject funds they borrow from the treasury into these institutions and let all the short-term creditors out, hmm. um, the creditors of the operating subsidiaries, and um, you know it's, it's it's not clear they couldn't rescue the the holding the top tier holding company creditors as well that way i mean the only way we'll know is to have a a good crisis to put all these tools to work in you know but i think we ought to be asking the question of whether we want to run a system with such broad blanket implied guarantees that are ambiguous and discretionarily administered because that's what leads to the turmoil when markets are wondering, will they or won't they intervene? I think we need to be asking that question. And I may have pointed out to you um, the last time we talked uh, that according to calculations of Richmond Fed economists, 62% of the debt of financial firms in the U.S. benefits from an implied or explicit government guarantee. And that's that's a heck of a way to run a financial system. Yeah. Uh, it puts a huge strain on the regulatory sector. Uh, that number may have fallen to 60 in the last couple mm-hmm. of years, but um, a huge fraction of, of financial sector liabilities are, are government guaranteed, either 
implicitly or explicitly. And that it just puts an incredible burden on the regulators to uh, contain the moral hazard, to ensure uh, that um, decisions are made in conformity with good incentives as opposed to the distorted incentives that those guarantees um, give rise to. So, Jeff, when you... Um you know you're teaching now, right? And so, what are what are, what what do you tell your students of sort of the best, the right lessons that were learned from from what we went through ten years ago? Uh, good question. Uh, so I don't teach till the spring. Just joined the faculty here at Virginia Commonwealth University. Um, I, the broad lesson I think is that uh, ambiguity um, of uh, federal financial safety net is poison, and that the extent of the safety net is large and growing and a concern, and it's not clear we've reached a stable um, arrangement uh, and that we should expect to have to revisit this whole set of issues in the future. Okay. Well, that's a gloomy note, Jeff. <laughs> Give me we'll something. figure something out. <laughs> so what, is there, what's, the sort of, what's your optimistic uh, read or takeaway from the whole past 10 years, what we've learned? Well, you know, how this unfolds is unclear. I mean, in, after the Great Depression, uh, risk-taking in, in the banking sector was heavily constrained, and we had decades of safety. And it could be that this uh, experience is, is, turns out to be uh, as cauterizing as the Great Depression and, and leads similarly to a, a very long um, you know, a very long stretch of relatively uh, placid banking. Which which have may be good and may also be restraining on the economy. Right. Could go either way. I mean, yeah. it, and, you know, on top of all this, you know, the, the constraints on risk-taking that are engendered logically by, um, you know, reflection on the, the nature of the safety net leads to incentives to bypass that regulation and to undertake risks outside of the regulated sector. And we're seeing that with private equity, getting into commercial lending markets, uh, you know, in the mid-corporate mid and lower sector, um, and, uh, you know, essentially bypassing the regulatory framework altogether. So the dreaded shadow banking risk. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, Jeff, thank you very much for uh, joining us from Richmond. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of our 10 Years After Exchange podcast series. If you haven't already, please sign up on iTunes and anywhere else you satisfy your audio cravings for The Exchange, The Views Room, and other Reuters podcasts. You can also check us out at BreakingViews.com and on Twitter at BreakingViews and at Rob1Cox. This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Eaton Vance High Yield ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find smart bond selection from a specialized team with deep fixed income expertise. Get to know what's inside EVHY, the symbol of high yield done right, at eatonvance.com symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC.